When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to the New Books Network. This is Dr. Melek Frata Altai. I am a musician and a neuroscientist. My research focuses on deciphering the pathomechanisms of neurodegenerative and neurodevelopmental disorders, and today I will be your host. We will be talking to Larry Sherman and Dennis Plies about their new book, Every Brain Needs Music, The Neuroscience of Making and Listening to Music, published by the Columbia University Press this year. Larry Sherman, a neuroscientist and lifelong musician, and Dennis Plies, a professional musician and teacher, collaborate to show how our brains and music work in harmony. They consider music in all the ways we encounter it, teaching, learning, practicing, listening, composing, improvising, and performing in terms of neuroscience as well as music pedagogy, showing how the brain functions and even changes in the process. Every Brain Needs Music draws on leading behavioral, cellular, and molecular neuroscience research, as well as surveys of more than 100 musical people. It provides new perspectives on learning to play, teaching, how to practice and perform, the ways we react to music, and why the brain benefits from musical experiences. Larry and Dennis, welcome to the show, and thank you for joining me today for this interview. I'm really excited. Uh, How are you? How's life? I'm doing fine. This is Dennis. Yeah, it's great to be here. This is Larry. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, I'm I'm really excited uh, because this book uh, is really uh, covering the two um, areas that uh, that um, are real uh, fields of passion for me: music and neuroscience. So before we get to discuss. Um, um, the book. Could you maybe start by telling us a little bit about yourselves? Larry, let's start with you first. Well, sure. So um, my name is Larry Sherman. I'm a professor of neuroscience at the Oregon Health and Science University. Uh, I'm also the president of the Society for Neuroscience for the state of Oregon in the United States and Southwest Washington. Um, And my research in my day job, if you will, is trying to figure out how to fix damaged brains and people with multiple sclerosis and Alzheimer's and and other neurological diseases. 
but I've also been a lifelong musician and have a fascination with music. Uh, and I've been giving talks about music and the brain now for over 15 years. And Dennis? Yes. Uh, well, my background is that uh, I was enamored with music at a very early age, age three. My parents share that I would sit and listen to a, the classical station for an hour and still, very still, and taking it in and begged for piano lessons. They finally found one um, at age six, but it was not piano. It was uh, the marimba. And because it's the same keyboard standing up uh, and playing it, but I would learn the basics of music and reading. And uh, that took me uh, interestingly enough, in on the television by age seven, uh, as I, I really took to music and, and then I added piano when I was eight and added trumpet when I was 10 and took these lessons all my years. And then when I went to college, I realized that I could uh, study pipe organ. And, and so eventually I, I got a two degrees in percussion at American Conservatory of Music in Chicago. And, and eventually my, my interest went to uh, teaching. So pedagogy is a, a very meaningful word to me in, in the art of teaching. And uh, it, that led to um, a dissertation on how to teach improvisation because uh, at age 28, I was asked a hard question in Chicago by my professor. He says, you talk a lot about jazz, you love jazz, but you've, do you wanna do it? And I said, yes, and that changed my life. Because <laughs> I heretofore, I, I had spent two years as a business administration major in college, uh, just because test results show that 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 would be an being an accountant would be what your brain is about, and it, those tests back then did not reveal artistic sensitivities <laughs> and such. Wow, amazing! And um, but how did you two meet each other, and how did you come to write uh, "Every Brain Needs Music"? Well, it turns out that, um, well, so I, I mentioned that I've been giving these talks. So um, I had been playing piano at a, an event for my department at my university. Um, and uh, somebody overheard me and says, I didn't know you play piano. And I said, yeah, I've been in bands my whole life and playing music my whole life. And uh, uh, this person, her name is Bobby Haggerty, asked me if I would give a talk about music in the brain to a group that she sponsored every year. And so I said, that'd be fun. So I kind of put something together with a little bit of humor and I actually added music, live music. I could play the piano and lecture from the piano and put some fun visuals into it. And I found out all these connections between the things that I do in my lab and what happens in the brain when you engage with music. And so I really got excited about it. But this talk together, um, that led to many more talks because people asked me how much they ch I would charge to give that talk, um, not expecting that anybody would pay to hear something like this. Um, and so after doing that talk, probably a couple hundred times, um, one morning I was at our gym 
and it turns out it's the same Dennis and I go to the same gym at about this time in the morning where it's it's uh actually earlier we usually we're at six o'clock in the morning um in Portland Oregon and uh I didn't know Dennis I'd seen him around at the gym but we were in the locker room and I was talking to my racquetball partner about one of the talks that I'd given the night before and Dennis says did you say you gave a talk about music in the brain and I said yeah and he turns to me and says uh I've seen your talk twice And and I just didn't recognize you without any clothes on, and so <laughs> and so um, and so that led to a lot of conversations. And I found out that Dennis, but he didn't just tell you, was that at the time he was a professor uh, of music at Warner Pacific University, and uh, we had these incredible discussions about music and history and and art and everything else and creativity and teaching. Um, and one thing led to another and uh, Dennis and I just decided we would write this book together. It would be a great marriage because I didn't want to write just a book about the neuroscience of music. There's a lot of great books out there on that topic. And I thought if we had something that combined the neuroscience with the pedagogy and, and the musical experience, um, that that would be a common kind of novel approach to, uh, to talking about the subject. Right. So let's talk about music and I have a very basic and a very difficult question at the same time. So what is your definition of music? And does it have a purpose or a function? Dennis, you want to start with yours? The one I appreciate is rather simple and uh, that it's organized sound and silence. And uh, in the jazz realm, I, I, I was taught a wonderful pedagogue, uh, Jerry Gray, that you 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 play your ideas, but they are framed by silence. And it's like looking at a picture on the wall. The frame is part of the picture. And uh, so sound and silence organized. That'd be mine. Yeah, and I, I love that definition. Um, uh, but... As a scientist, I think um, there's a great quote from Frank Zappa, who said that a composer is a guy who goes around forcing his will on unsuspecting air molecules, often with the assistance of unsuspecting musicians. And, and uh, from the standpoint of both physics and neuroscience, when you think about what sound is, it's vibrating air molecules floating through space, um, going into the ear and being picked up by the, the machinery of the ear, the inner ear, and then being transported to um, the auditory cortex in the brain, and then sent on to other parts of the brain where it becomes perceived as music. So it's a rather uh, not quite so poetic uh, way to think about music as as organized sound, but it's but it kind of captures really all of the aspects of it. Um, as to the purpose of music, I, I think you know this this incredible thing that we spend so much of our time creating and, and listening to and, and engaging with um, has many purposes, but I think probably the one that, if you think in evolutionary terms, probably makes the most sense is that it actually brings people together. Um, you, 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 there's all this great data about how um, singing together or playing instruments together actually changes neurochemistry in a way that um, makes people feel more accepted within groups and then, of course, the other powerful thing about music is it's an incredible way to trans transmit information. If you um, put lyrics to, to music, uh, it's much more com compelling in many ways than it is with just the lyrics alone. 
And in fact, people's brains really react to that. If you haven't sung a song uh, in many years and you start humming the tune, the lyrics come back to you. So as an tra uh, information transmitting system, I think it's been used over the years in very different ways, in a very powerful way to uh, bring people together and to tell stories and to bring uh, information to people. So there are many aspects to music making. Um, we could listen to music, we could uh, improvise, um, or we could compose. So on the neuroscience side, how does the brain handle uh, these different activities? So for example, uh, do we process music differently when we uh, practice or when we uh, improvise or when we compose? Could you expand a little bit on this? Yeah, so um, in terms of what the brain's doing, um, if you think about improvisation versus composing, you know, composing is a very deliberate activity. And so what's happening in the brain is you're activating centers of the brain involved in planning, involved in pattern, rec pattern recognition and change. Um, all these other things are coming together and integrating uh, and, you know, I think Dennis can speak more to this, but, uh, you know, when you're composing, you're doing all these different things that are meant to last. Um, you're, so you're going to be editing a lot. You're going to be changing things. You're going to be imagining what you want the next part of the music to sound like. In contrast with improvisation, um, you're kind of letting go. It's, it's really meant to be in the moment and it's not something that's meant to last necessarily. So, so remarkably, when you look at what's happening in the brain, when you're improvising, is you're actually turning a lot of things off to disinhibit rules and all these other things that are maybe constraining you from letting go and, and trying something new. Dennis, what do you think? Well, definitely on the composing side, it's uh, heavy, heavy thinking, decision making, what is the very next best note? What, what rhythm am I employing? Uh, what, harmony see it's all all about thinking and decision making and then improvisation is uh not really winging it 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 is very much uh knowledge based uh i can barely speak in english but there's no way i can speak in a language that i'd have no vocabulary of and so the structure of knowledge and uh, practicing scales and chords and ideas and having what you hear in the ear become something on the instrument so that you're not just pushing buttons or flailing sticks behind a marimba. Um, it's purposeful and it's directed by what you're hearing, but to be able to practice so much to get that connection so that what you hear, you can put onto the piano or whatever instrument is takes a lot of practice. So it's not in terms of what's happening in the brain then, I mean, you're, you're right. I mean, you have to have the experience to play the instrument that you're playing obviously, and to understand the music that you're hearing and, and working with. But in terms of what you're doing when you improvise compared to composing, you're actually you're actually turning off networks um, that are allowing you to like do things that are a little bit more more free, I think, than you do when you're composing, which is so it's so it's so intentional and so planned um, and involves a lot of editing and 
uh, we talk about audiation, imagining sound and then putting it to paper or putting it to the screen. Um, and these are very different types of activities that your brain is engaging in. You asked about practicing music. Um, um, well, that's a whole different thing. Uh, so your brain's doing something very, very different when you're practicing, especially when you're learning a new instrument. And I, I don't know if you want to get into that now, um, but but yeah, so um, that's actually where my expertise actually comes in because um, sort of the big message that we have is uh, there are three major processes we undergo when we learn to play a new instrument. Um, one is uh, myelination, which is what we st I study in my lab. Um, and so myelin is this material that wraps around the nerve, nerve processes um, and allows for very high speed transmission of information, the electrical signals. So I always, I always like to tell people, if you, if you have myelin and you're a nerve cell, it's like you're driving on the Autobahn in Germany at midnight where there's no speed limit. You can be going 200, no one's going to stop you. Um, and if you lose your myelin, it's like driving on a, a really congested highway at rush hour, uh, where you're lucky to be going, you know, two kilometers per hour, right? So it's, it's, it's a, that's, a, that's actually about the difference in speed when you lose your myelin. And so you think about what our brains are doing when we're engaging with music in any way, there has to be very high speed uh, communication between these different parts of our brain. And if any of that breaks down, you can't do it. Remarkably, it turns out that when we practice a new instrument um, and learn a new new way to play music, um, it drives the formation of new myelin. Um, and that's that's really remarkable. So that's one thing that we, we can benefit from. And one thing that changes in the brain when we're actually learning to play an instrument. And when we practice something intentionally and everything else, those, those types of things are gonna be happening. Another thing that's happening is we know for sure we're making new connections between neurons and those are called synapses. And so the synapses are, are, are connections between cells that help form these circuits in our brain. And when we learn something like playing a piano or playing a guitar or even you know, really intentionally learning to be a good vocalist, you're forming new synapses. Um, and the more you practice, the more the strength, stronger those synapses are. You may forget a piece and then come back to it years later. Rehearsing then re-strengthens those synapses. If you forget about it and just don't do it, do it again, those synapses go away. Um, but this is also happening when we engage with music that way, when we're practicing music. And then finally, when we, when we make, when we're making new music and practicing new music, one of the things we think is happening is we're actually making new neurons. Um, and so this is something when I was in grad school, we didn't think was possible, but it turns out there are these neural stem cells in our brains, uh, that are capable of becoming new neurons. And uh, there's some evidence to suggest that musicians, professional musicians are, when they're pushing themselves to learn something really new, uh, are capable of generating new, new nerve cells. And so that's the process of neurogenesis. And so we have myelination, neurogenesis, and synapse formation all happening in our brains when we're learning a new instrument and then practicing it. For the more practical aspects of practicing, uh, I have to turn to Dennis because I think to generate those things, there's very specific things you have to do when you practice music um, and, and have this relationship with a, a music teacher, if you have one, um, that will be important to have that happen. What do you think, Dennis? I, I taught five lessons yesterday on piano, and uh, one of them is age 68, and piano is new to him. He's, uh, wow. Wow. <laughs> And 
it's it's absolutely challenging for him uh and then i taught a 60 year old uh, woman who it's she's only started a few months and she's doing it for uh prevention of dementia she's it's in her stream she says and she's so it's a very purposeful and then i taught three of our grandchildren and their ages uh 10, 11, and, and 12, and uh, 10, 11, and uh, 14, and um, each of them, it's a matter of f- finding their motivation and teaching them practice techniques. I I don't expect them to to take all of my advice. <laughs> I've, I, I've taught hundreds of students, and uh, but when the advice it has to do with narrowing down the focus, it's sort of like a three by five card focus. One thing we can do when we practice an, an instrument or singing is is how fast we go and how little part, a little chunk of something so that we can be successful. That's the whole point is to be successful rather than to rush through a piece and, and then clobber it and then go back to the beginning and and re-clobber it that it's such a waste of time but it is so it's such a human tendency (laughs) i I know from personal experience it's extremely inefficient and everyone does it so So going slower and taking a smaller passage is is very wise and the other there are things really break down to one of three aspects it's either you don't understand the rhythm or not portraying it accurately or you're misreading the notes or you're not playing the notes that you're hearing or it's a technical problem and and when the uh when the the gesture a physical gesture looks like the sound of the music now you're talking. <laughs> wow. Ah, this is this is interesting. I never thought of this. The sorry, repeat the the, the last comment. The if the gesture mm. the, the physical <clears throat> gesture. So if, yes, yeah. Uh so I would on a piano, let's say, uh you have an octave leap. So when when the hand is not just stretching but it's moving to the 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 point at which you're going to apply the 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 weight of your your particular finger when it it looks like what it sounds it, it, that that is a connection of uh, um, well it, it's definitely would would apply to dancers and uh, it's just dancing on an instrument appropriately when it really looks like if you're playing staccato for example that should have a different look <laughs> than legato. Uh, and it, and this comes back to what I was saying about all these processes that are happening when you're learning to play an instrument, but also when you're just learning to play a piece, you know, you're, you're thinking about what you're doing. You're combining, I mean, let's say you're reading music. Okay. So you're, 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 you're taking this visual information off the page or off of a screen. The photons are going into your eye. They're going to the back of your, your eye the, to the retina where, where information is first processed. That's going to be sent all the way down your optic nerve and then eventually to the back of your brain where visual information is first processed. Um, and then from there, it's going to go out to all these different areas that are asking questions like, 
what is that note? Where is that note relative to other notes on the page? And then that information is going to be sent to other areas of your brain to understand all these other things that are part of that, that, that script that you're being, you're reading. And then finally being sent to the uh, areas of your brain, like the thalamus, which is going to control relays to your motor cortex. Um, it, all these things are happening and then sent down your arms to finally play that, in, that note. And like Dennis says, if you're having to, to make, make your hand go from one C to the next higher C up, because you, maybe your hand isn't quite big enough to do an octave, that's a lot of really intense, very fine movement that has to happen. And the only way you're going to get that to happen smoothly is by practicing and practicing and practicing. Um, but when you're doing that, you're actually, again, generating these synapses. You may be altering your myelin. All these things are happening uh, to make that work appropriately and to get to the point where you accomplish uh, your goal of making that sound good. That's that's the beauty of uh, learning music. I feel you have to pay attention, you have to be thinking, and it's just a a thorough brain workout. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're combining fine and gross motor movement, sensory uh, information, uh, cognitive information. You're you're listening to what you're playing, and so you're having to adjust your playing based on what you're hearing. So you've got visual and auditory happening. Uh, you're having an emotional response to that. So all these things are happening in your brain uh, in, in less than picoseconds, which is really remarkable. And it's definitely exciting to practice something and then hear the difference and, and to say, so I just learned something. <laughs> I have a skill that I didn't have five minutes ago. That in itself is a, a reward. It's a dopamine hit. <laughs> Yes, I, mean, absolutely. I would argue that playing a musical instrument is probably one of the most challenging things a human brain can do. Uh, I always think about these people who play these multi-tiered organs. I'm sure Dennis has done this. Where your, your, your hands are all over the place. Your feet are on pedals that are moving. Maybe you're pulling out stops and then add to that singing on top of that. Oh my gosh, your brain oh, is <laughs> an incredible workout for a brain. Yeah, yeah. But so well, is playing Mary Had a Little Lamb if you've never done it before. Mm -hmm. Yeah, or mm -hmm. a, a guitar or whatever. Mm -hmm. Also, when you're performing in front of people, I mean, by that stage, probably you're not reading, uh, especially if you're a classical Western um, musician, um, you're past the stage of reading off the of the manuscript because you probably play from memory. But then other other aspects come into play, such as reacting to the audience and reacting to the environment that you're performing in especially if you're a pianist, because you cannot carry your own instrument. You also have to adapt to the instrument. Plus, you might have a stage fright and anxiety. So, so many different things to, to handle all at once. I don't know what your thoughts are on this about performing in front of people. Well, I, I think from the neuroscience point of view, and I think Dennis will speak to this more, um, your brain has now gone from the practice mode in this kind of safe space you've been in to get, get everything right, uh, to a space which may, you may never have been in before. Um, the acoustics may be different. That's one thing. You know, so you're thinking, how does, how does my instrument sound in this space? And like you said, maybe it's not your instrument. Maybe it's another instrument. So you have to kind of get used to that too. Um, then you've got um, your brain. So your brain's going to react to that and actually make small changes in how you play what you've practiced. The good news is you've practiced so well 
that you feel comfortable with just the act of performing on the instrument of choice. Um, but there's things you may need to change and your brain's going to make these changes based on auditory information, visual information. Um, if you're playing with another musician or group of musicians, uh, again, you're going to make adjustments based on how they're performing. Uh, so there's all these things that are going to be happening. And then if you add the audience to the mix, you know, you may, you may react to them and your brain is going to be listening. It's, if you think about it, it's really a group of brains in a room. So your brain is, is doing something with an instrument that was instructed to you by the brain of a composer, unless you're just improvising on your own. But you think about how many brains are just there, you know, the brain of the of the composer, the brain of the, the musician, who are trying to recreate something that the composer had in mind. And then there's the brains of the audience who are reacting to the music. And then that's feeding back on the brains of the, the musicians, the performers, because maybe they're restless. Maybe they're humming along or singing along or clapping. Maybe they're wrinkling pieces of paper, you know, um, and your brain is reacting to all of these things and adjusting accordingly uh, based on that great, you know, foundation of what you did when you were practicing the piece you're performing. So let's talk about the aesthetics of music. I mean, we might strongly like or dislike certain types of music or performances, um, what are the underlying reasons for this? Do we have any idea on the neuroscience side uh, as to what makes us associate with certain types of music, enjoy listening to them? A lot of our early preferences stem from early experiences, especially in adolescence, but also some to some degree in early childhood. So it's what you're exposed to, right? So um, if you if you grow up listening to Chinese opera, um, you're going to have a different preference than someone who grew up listening to uh, uh, something from India or something from the West. Um, you know, these these music preferences, we, it's based on what we hear uh, in early life. And in fact, different cultures have different scale systems even. And so that's going to affect your, your preference to some degree. But then, of course, you're growing up and you get to be an adolescent and your friends are listening to one type of music. And so that may impact your choice to listen to that kind of music versus some other kind of music. I still love classical rock music because that's what my friends were listening to. And that's what I was exposed to and I got into. Um, later in life, you may add to that or subtract from it. Actually, you may get bored with one kind of music or just not like it anymore for one or the other reason. Uh, that is a, an adjustment that has to do with our reward systems, dopamine, and everything else that's rewarding our brains in one way or the other. Um, so we we hear something and we like it. Uh, and we may like it because, again, of our previous experience, we may like it because of its novelty, right? So we may hear something and think, wow, that's so unusual. And that's that's a rush. And when we like something that actually invo that involves a group of proteins called opioid receptors, and in particular, uh, so-called mu opioid receptors, um, and that's a liking response. That's, that's a, believe it or not, a technical term, liking. Um, and when we like something, it actually drives us to um, activate the reward system. When we like something, we want it. So wanting is another response, again, driven mostly by dopamine and the reward system. And then when we get what we want, uh, that's a reward. We get We get happy and excited by that. 
And that drives us back to the liking cycle. And when you get enough of it, you feel satiated, you feel happy. Um, so um, this, this liking wanting cycle uh, can kind of drive our preferences for music. Um, but it also can drive you to get away from music because you like it first and then your neuroopid receptors get too stimulated and they, they get turned off and it's like, ah, I don't like this anymore. I want to move on to something else. So these are things that happen throughout our lives. And again, our plasticity of our brain has a lot to do with what we like when we are in different parts of our lives. Um, so it's a, so partly again, it's about the ex things you're exposed to early on in life. It partly again about social aspects. You know, what do, what are your peers listening to? Partly about what you're exposed to later in life and how that alters those preferences, um, and how all that is affecting this this reward system, this this liking wanting response. Dennis, would you like to add to that? Well, it seems like it comes down to exposure and also uh, the power of culture. That that in and then also, I think of nature nurture, uh, the eternal <laughs> quandary. Uh, what what do we bring genetically to the table, and then how does what our our environment contribute to uh, awakening that or or dampening it and i also think of of musical taste uh similar to food taste and part of that is exposure uh and and then the other is physiologically i mean what am i hearing what am i tasting what uh what does the person next to me hear and uh, and and taste and it, we're individuals and and yet then we're in in culture so uh i i have found it, it, it a fascination that my musical tastes have changed over the years and what in my 20s and 30s i could not get enough raucous uh avant-garde sounds in my ears and it was but it was a learning time and now at age 81 i i can barely handle the raucousness <laughs> i i'm apparently mellowing down in, into a, a different stage of life and it's it's almost scary <laughs> because I, so part of it is is age development too i think that can play into people's tastes uh need for uh Care, more uh, le less stress yeah what, what used to not be stressful but I, I begged for it in my 20s and 30s is now seemingly st stressful and uh, <laughs> 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 I think also maybe an aspect of um, finding a balance between predictability uh, predictability and surprise I, I find this to be a very important um element uh, to make me like listening to something or not. If I can predict everything from the beginning, then I get completely yeah. bored and I never even bother listening to the rest. Absolutely. And I, and I think there are personality traits that can predict how you like or dislike certain types of music. Even in, in a bigger sense, do you prefer sad songs to happy songs, for example? Um, a lot of people really love sad music. Um, and think about how many songs are out there on the radio at any given moment or on, you know, various 
streaming services that are sad songs. Why, why do we seek out sad music? And it turns out it has to do with personality traits involving empathy and, and again, coming back to the reward system. So some people really like sad songs because they have a high level of empathy. Um, there's some sense that sad songs are kind of cathartic because um, you can experience the sadness without experiencing the event that causes you to be sad. Um, but some people feel like, you know, you have this empathy for the person who's singing these very sad lyrics. Turns out empathy is a rewarding trait. If you feel empathy, it's a reward to you. It's a re rewarding to you to feel empathetic. So um, there's this really interesting feedback loop about how sad songs can be liked by some people. Some people hate listening to sad songs. It really drives them to tears and they, they don't like that. And so they prefer happier music or, or at least neutral music. Um, and so, again, that has to do with a lot of personality traits that, that everybody's different. Right. It's been really fascinating, this discussion. It's, um, it's a really uh, favorite subject uh, for me to, to talk about the neuroscience of music or just music or just neuroscience. <laughs> so um, what are you currently working on? Do you have any new projects coming up? I don't, but I, uh, I'm trying to put the book into practice and challenge myself and challenge my brain for uh, synaptic development and, and myelination by uh, practicing r really uh, things that just gnarl me. I mean, I have a, I, I appreciate what I'm doing, but it's, they're not fun, I might say. I, I'm working on melodic minor scales, but when uh, the melodic minor goes up one way and comes down another, and so now I'm learning only to go the way I went up to come down and then to do that in all modes. And it's more of a jazz uh, scale anyway, but in all the modes of that minor, that renewed uh, minor, melodic minor scale, it's a killer. It, it makes my brain have to think and keep attention. Uh, I'm reading music backward so that I literally, I, I read the, the, uh, the rhythm as it's showing but um, I'm very mindful that I'm, I'm a reader who's used to patterns forward. And so I'll, I'll catch myself playing the pattern forward that I perceived, even though I'm trying to just do one note at a time. Uh, I'll play uh, on the piano or the vibes or marimba um, a melody with my left hand instead of my right hand and then uh, play chords with the other hand and this is all done in different keys and and without eyes looking at the the keyboard so i'm i'm in a space of 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 uh, seeking sound wise and uh there's chords in scales you uh, so it's knowing us knowing a scale is one thing but you can play it in thirds and then you can stack the thirds into triads and you can stack them on into seventh chords and etc and if you do that in in all keys in various inversions you you've got uh, a lot of work to do <laughs> it sounds the, it, it sounds like a major major challenge <laughs> <laughs> but I, uh, that but that's a, that's a life choice because uh, I'm not choosing to learn another instrument right now. And oh, which one? Not. I'm. Sorry, he's not, I, he's not. You're not. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, 
so I decided I'll I'll work rugged material on the instruments I'm okay on. <laughs> Dennis and I were talking about this the other day at the gym, and um, uh, I said to him, I said, you really need to take careful notes on this because this is exactly the kind of thing that I think music therapists uh, would gain from. And I think, uh, you know, pushing yourself on an instrument that you're familiar with might be more easy to convince a patient to do who's suffering from some sort of traumatic brain injury, for example, than learning a whole new instrument. But the challenge can still be there. And that's the amazing thing about music. You can always find ways to really challenge your brain and push yourself outside your comfort zone to do something that's going to really push those processes we mentioned before, myelination and neurogenesis and synapse formation. So, And I believe that's true because of the simultaneity that's going on in, in music making. You, you, you'd obviously have rhythm, you obviously have melody, and there's an implied harmony, even if you're not producing it. And, and there's tone quality, and there's, there's patterns galore that you can think about and practice. And so it's the simultaneity, and then your, 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 your body is being uh, used to make all of this happen. So the simultaneity. So for my for my big new project, I mean, other than the constant work going on in my laboratory, um, uh, I'm actually co collaborating with a local uh, chamber orchestra uh, and a singer here in Portland. Um, and we're putting on a show about the neuroscience of motherhood. So, um, uh, there's been all this beautiful new data um, about how um, a woman's brain changes during pregnancy in really dramatic ways, uh, but also how uh, a woman and a child's brains together change with bonding over time um, and how that keeps going generationally. So we're even looking at grandmothers and their relationships with their, their daughters and their grandchildren. Um, and so there's just, it's a, a lot to talk about from the standpoint of music. There's great music out there about motherhood and mothers and children. There's great poetry that we're going to include in this production. Um, and there's some really interesting neuroscience. And so that's my, that's my big new project. I'm outside looking forward to hearing more about it, actually. It's, it sounds very interesting. Well, Larry and Dennis, thank you very much for joining me today. It was a great uh, discussion. This was Thanks a lot of fun. Me. Thank you. It was fun, yeah.